0: Lord Baelish. Cheetah, please. Are you heading to listen to Binge Mode? I'm going to the Eyrie to see your aunt Lysa in and the Veil. She's sensitive, so I feel, I feel compelled to tell you that Binge Mode features adult content. Good, good. Very graphic at times. Good. I know how she is around Moondoor, so wanted to warn you just in case. And now, here's Binge Mode.
1: We are not the Seven Kingdoms until dawn returns to the Fold. The King is dead. The Greyjoys are in open rebellion. A wildling army marches on the wall.
0: And in the East, a
1: Targaryen girl has three dragons. Before long, she will turn her eyes to Westeros. Only the Dornish manage to resist Aegon, Targaryen and his dragons. You're saying you need us. That must be hard for you to admit. We need each other.
0: Hello! Hello! And welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Mallory Rubin, Deputy Editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished threatening to eat the villagers' mamas and papas, Ew. it's Ringer staff writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion.
1: Hello! We're going to the Vale to see your aunt Lysa
0: Oh man, guys, we have a new voice Welcome to the team, Littlefinger It's
1: only because his accent is so bonkers this season
0: So amazingly off the rails This is my
1: niece, Elaine Robin, I brought you a gift
0: Jason? Yeah? Some ask what makes a good king we want to know mm. what makes a good binge watch, so we are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones. We are deep dive in one episode at a time. Spoiler warning for all of you, as usual, we will be going deep on details from the show and the books from this season and beyond. So be a wise king, know what you know and what you don't, because it is time to break down season four, episode three, Breaker of Chains. Jason. Yes. The Hound is considering booking passage across the narrow sea. Yeah. But we, we are traveling down another passageway. Let's offer a brief refresher on what actually happened in this third installment by taking a quick trip down our own King's Road.
1: In King's Landing, the King is dead. Long live the King. Who killed him? Cersei knows it was Tyrion who oft spoke ill of his nephew. And where is his wife, Sansa? Running through the dust gloom streets of the capital. Her hood up, fast on the heels of Ser Dantos, as it turns out. He takes her to a ship where Littlefinger awaits. Baelish's men murder the drunken fool. I don't trust drunken fools. <laughs> and Littlefinger and Sansa make for the Vale. For the second time now, Marjorie's dearest wish to be queen, the queen, has slipped away. She discusses her next move with Olena, who makes two good points. The Lannisters still need house Tyrell, one. And Joffrey has a brother, Tommen, the first of his name. Long may he reign.
0: On the road, in the Riverlands, near Fairmarket, I think, <laughs> the Hound and Arya cross paths with a farmer and his young daughter, young Sally. They sell a story. The Hound is Arya's father, just back from the war. Forgive him right. and his attitude. He was a, He was a soldier. Where'd you fight? Who'd you fight for? Ah, House Tully. Amazing how often on this show, characters <laughs> yeah. need to be able to come up with just the right answer in that situation. The farmer, kind-hearted man, invites the two back to his cottage for some rabbit stew, which is apparently delicious. It's really good. And, you know, one thing leads to another, a little discussion. Would you like some, you know, fair pay for fair work? Well, Arya goes to bed. She wakes up to screams. The hound has cracked the farmer over the head for the silver that he offered in exchange you for a that thief. fair work. Thought you weren't a fief. All every man has to have a code, right? Yeah. He and Arya depart for the mountains. For the Vale.
1: In Castle Black in the north, Gilly's presence is causing a predictable tumult among the ranks of the Night's Watch. Um Sam notices and is rightfully concerned. He decides to send Gilly to Molestown. Molestown, by the way, It's an underground village populated entirely by poxy black-toothed whores. Gilly hates it there.
0: Sounds charming. Seems not great. Speaking of not great places, over in Dragonstone, the tidings of the usurper Joffrey Baratheon's death has reached Stannis. This, he is sure, means that R'hllor's power and Melisandre's ability to channel it Real, what other explanation is there, huh? Davos, what other explanation is there, buddy? What do you
1: got? What have you been doing? What have you been doing?
0: How many (laughs) usurpers have you taken (laughs) down? Davos wants his king to know that he's been up to stuff too. He's rallying all sorts of tiny the (laughs) Celtic, the crabs, you know, to the cause. What about? Sell swords. You need an army? Hey, here's a solution. Sure. Let's head east. Let's get some mercenaries. Stannis, of course, offended by this idea. He has such delicate sensibilities, yeah, no, right? but they progress to the matter of payment. How would they pay them? Well, Shireen, the font of wisdom and inspiration, as always, while giving Davos his latest reading lesson, helps him sort of process the ways of the world. And suddenly, inspiration strikes. Bravos in the Iron Bank.
1: In the Sept of Baylor. King Tommen Baratheon is everything his big brother Joffrey was not. Thoughtful, kind, a lover of kittens. Yes! Open to advice. Now that last trait will be much to Tywin Lannister's advantage. He's counseling the new king already, even as they stand over Joff's body, as Cersei looks on. Jaime arrives. He clears everyone out of the sept. Then Cersei tells him, I am sure this is Tyrion's work, and I want him dead. They kiss. They argue. And then... Jamie rapes Cersei against the funeral beer of their firstborn son. Now, this was controversial, and it was a controversy that the showrunners felt the need to address, and we're going to talk about the reasons why right now.
0: This uh, is one of the more complicated and controversial relationships and scenes, not not only in this episode or this season, but in in the show's run to this point. When this episode aired, uh, there was an uproar after yeah. after it aired about the choices made in this scene and the nature of the scene itself and then ultimately about the response that the show team gave in explanation. And, you know, we, we just wanted to talk for a couple minutes about sort of the context that this was greeted with at the time and a couple of the factors that led to this discussion. Um, One of those is that, this is is ultimately the least important, but one of them is that some viewers, even viewers who didn't necessarily have book knowledge, which we will get to in a minute, were puzzled by this choice because one of the uh, predominant storylines in season three is Jamie's rehabilitation as a character, going from somebody who was a kind of like prototypical at times cartoony villain, right. and Sneering pushing villain. the kid out yeah. the window, right? To go from that guy to not only somebody who you uh, suddenly understood better and wanted to understand more, but someone you actually were rooting for and yeah. were invested in. And what was the propelling force of his journey? It was a desire to get back to Cersei. And for this to be the way he behaves once he's back to her, felt like undoing, needlessly undoing a lot right. of really hard earned progress.
1: And the next thing is that this is different than in the books. Right. So what you're dealing with is a scene that uh, they changed. I should say in, in the in the books, the beginning of the scene plays out in a similar fashion, but it's quite clear a lot quicker that Cersei is consenting right. to the relationship at that point. That doesn't exist in this scene. It's pretty much like she's uh, objecting Saying no, this isn't right, and then there's never a turn where you feel like she is acquiesced. Right, it's hard to understand why they made that choice. Right. If it was in the books, okay, that's one thing, and you know that's that's how it's depicted there. But to change it and to do it, that's another aspect of this that felt really strange. And then the and then the third thing really is that it's unclear that they knew that this scene would be received in this way.
0: Right the Difference between how it was maybe intended, right, or uh, how the showrunners thought viewers would read the scene, and how most people did read it, it was pretty stark. And uh, I think a lot of people were uh, pleasantly surprised that the the team was willing to engage in the dialogue. Right? right? It wasn't this like, ah, eh, no one ignored the issue. There was a discussion. There was a response the response ultimately exacerbated the second point we just discussed which right. is well this isn't actually the way that this is sort of supposed to play the explanation was ultimately well we actually didn't think it played that way right um and so there was a lot of confusion around that
1: let me read um real quick uh, george was asked george r r martin who's writer of the series the books um was asked about it at the time and he, and he said um in in the show, uh, Jamie is in King's Landing for a while, so Cersei has time to to kind of acclimate to his presence back in the capital. Um, in the novels, Jamie's not present at Joffrey's death, and you know um, Cersei is worried that he's fearful himself. This is what George says, and then he and then he goes on to say. Also, I was writing the scene from Jamie's POV, so the reader is inside his head, hearing his thoughts. On the TV show, the camera is necessarily external. You don't know, no, you don't know what anyone is thinking or feeling. Just what they are saying and doing, and he goes on to say that um, he never discussed the, the changes with the producers. So
0: right, and this is one of the moments where translating a text to a different medium right. can be—we well, see what a challenge it right. can be, right? Because that point from George, while you're you're inside the head of one of the yeah. participants in the book. On the show, by necessity, all you have is access to the lines and the body language. Well, what is she saying? She's saying, please stop it. He says, no. She says, it's not right. It's not right. It's not right. And he says, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. That's the way we, we exit the scene. That's the last bit of access we have to either of their perspectives. And so it is not as easy or even possible for a show watcher to make the leap of interpretation that it is for somebody reading a text where you're spending so much time inside of really both of those characters' heads, only one of them in that moment, but ultimately you have access to both of their thoughts.
1: Uh, George closes that note by saying, the scene was always intended to be disturbing, but I do regret if it has disturbed people for the wrong reasons. So these these are the complications that can arise when you are trying to adapt really a dense character-driven stories, such is this, that has events in it that are violent and adult in nature.
0: All right, Jason, let's explore this episode's yes. big idea. Back in season two, Mira told Osha, some people will always need help. That doesn't mean they aren't worth protecting. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it. The defining theme of this episode is protection. In the wake of the Purple Wedding, with threats both real and perceived, haunting the halls of the Red Keep and the realm at large, protective instincts are kicking in. Some characters are desperately searching for human shields, for people who can help. Others are looking to serve as that protective barrier, either to further an ally's cause or to further his or her own cause. And Protection like anything else in this world is rarely, if ever, purely altruistic, but we do see different motivations fueling different characters' decisions.
1: Start with a little finger in Sansa. And the the topic on everyone's mind is what the fuck <laughs> is going on with Baelish's accent? It's in incredible. This-
0: every oh. <laughs> it's changed every season. It really- it's a it's a constantly ever, it's an ever-evolving beast. This
1: Your Aunt Lysa in the veil.
0: This is amazing. And he's also, you can see his facial expressions yeah. reflect that he knows yeah. that this is just like a delicious yeah, he's, souffle that he's <laughs> He's twirling his mustache so hard. Oh my god. Just with his voice. Well, and just the very, very first word he utters, right? She Sansa, yeah. she she climbs up the ladder. You know, Serdantos has given her a pep talk. You're stronger than you think. Go for it. She gets up there. Who should she see, right? And so, oh, there he is. And what does she say? Lord Baelish. Peter. (laughs) (laughs) It's so creepy, but amazing. Hello.
1: Yeah, and you know, Littlefinger's style of taking someone under his wing is various forms of manipulation, sometimes overt, sometimes more subtle, but... Always ever present, he has to get Sansa to opt into sailing away. Particularly after he has one of his men uh, shoot Dantos. <laughs> How do you think they'd punish the girl who murdered the king? <laughs> you must admit, it looks suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a it's a really codependent relationship in a way. Sansa is not quite the neophyte that she was in previous seasons. She understands that. She doesn't, she knows enough to know she doesn't know a lot about what is happening. And so she's, you know, trying to find out, she's asking the, uh, I mean, the obvious question, why did you kill him? Meaning Sir Dantos. Um, And he walks Sansa and the viewers through the the true purpose of the necklace Dantos gave Sansa. (laughs) He was a drunk and a fool, and I don't trust drunken fools. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, he doesn't trust people who can't protect his secrets, there's um,
0: nothing more valuable to him than his uh, own agenda. And anybody who compromises that yeah. is a threat. How do they compromise it? By potentially revealing it, right? right? We'll hear more from him in the next episode about this, but it's always about being one step ahead. Got, he's a gotta keep him guessing guy. Right. And you can't keep him guessing if some drunk fool is out there revealing what you've been up to. That's
1: true. The interesting thing about Littlefinger and Sansa is that, on the one hand... She's a chess piece to him. She's the key to the North. Um, but on the other hand, she's really his his greatest weakness uh-huh. because he has these feelings toward her, as he did toward her mother, Catelyn, who apparently she looks a lot like. And it's driving him in a way that is different from the way he has uh, acted in the past. It's a different motivation for him. And, you know, when he says to Sansa, Money buys a man's silence for a time. A bolt in the heart buys it forever. Sansa <laughs> needs to dive into yeah. the sea at that point and just leave.
0: God, what is she doing? We're what? going to the veil. <laughs> Guys, season four is going to be special. Yeah, really we have so, so many more little finger impressions <laughs> ahead. I cannot wait. Olena. Yeah. There is an interesting... Protective exchange between Olena and Marjorie, but she's not just protecting Marjorie, right? She is protecting, she's kind of thinking like Tywin here. Very much so. The family name, Yeah. the family legacy. Very much so. How does she position her family name for success? By putting Marjorie with someone who she can manipulate and control. Joffrey was not going to be right. that person, right? And Marjorie's worried. What does this mean, right? right. Olena notes correctly that the alliance. That they struck remains as necessary to the Lannisters.
1: That's what made this possible.
0: As it was before. So many of the fuck-ups on this show. Obviously, we saw it a lot with Rob, we saw it with Ned. Is acting, we see it with Cersei all the time, actually, acting without anticipating what the 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 fallout is going to be and then how you're going to have to act again. Olena has already planned for the next step, right? She has assessed Tom and she says to Marjorie. The next one should be easier. She knows that Marjorie's just going to marry Tommen now. That is really effective protection. She's keeping Marjorie and her agenda safe. And Elena, she also always brings perspective, right? She says, the world is overflowing with terrible things, but they're all a tray of cakes compared to death. It's really cool to get these. So many injections of wisdom from her. Yeah. Often she's up there really with like a varys, and oh, yeah. Littlefinger, and a couple other just it's a select company of characters where every scene they have is so
1: packed,
0: yep. Tywin with precious words and insights. And, you know, Marjorie is coming around, but she's still she's struggling. She says, I must be cursed. I mean, you
1: come that close.
0: It's the second king yeah. that she's married. You come that died. close
1: twice. Right. Two kings in as many years. It doesn't matter that the last guy was a fucking monster. It's, yeah, you got it's not not ideal.
0: But what does Olena say? Right. Nonsense, your circumstances exactly. have improved markedly. Which
1: is the interesting thing about Joffrey's assassination. He, I mean, you look at even Tywin. He's not really broken up about it, guys. Like it, this is amenable to everyone this helps everyone.
0: Cersei's so really the only one who's having a hard time right. here, really the only one. Over in
1: the Riverlands, the Hound and Arya and the farmer and Sally. Sometimes the play to be a protector or protected is subtle and sometimes it's just right in your face, it's overt. After sharing stew and an ode to the Seven, the Farmer asks the Hound to stay on for help and protection, you know. Um, things have been a fucking mess in the Riverlands since the war popped off, as they always are. The Riverlands, we've covered this before very chaotic place in general and now you know the fields and the roads are just overrun with highwaymen and robbers and thieves and he he says if any thieves come for easy pickings one look at you i bet they'd run away you're str- look at you i bet right. you could you're swing scary. that sword god a man has to have a code you know the hound has a code i'm not a thief but he doesn't always have to honor his pledge i guess you know arya wakes up to screams shouts Wah! My father, And finds that the hound has beaten the farmer and is (laughs) striding off long strides with his purse of silver. Um, Interesting perspective from the hound. Those people aren't worth protecting. He says, I, he's a good man and his daughter makes a good stew (laughs) and they'll both be dead by winter. You don't know that. Arya says, I do know it. He's weak. Can't protect himself. They'll both be dead by winter and dead men don't need silver.
0: And you know, the thing is,
1: He's this probably is, right.
0: This is one of the tougher ideas to yeah. grapple with because on the one hand, it's hard to argue against the points he's making. Aligning yourself with weak people right. gets you killed, right. right? But the flip side is what Mira said to Osha back in season two right. about Jojen. It's like sometimes it is worth Right. Some things are people. just right. Right. And the hound is not necessarily guided by a moral compass. He's guided by ultimately, he's a pragmatist, right? Right. It's a and, survivor, exactly. And who can blame him? Look yeah. at his childhood and his life, right? It's the 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 protective instinct in his case is yeah. I mean, inward.
1: Imagine imagine your brother being the mountain. Right. You know, you, that's every day you're risking death by just looking at him the wrong way, right? You and know, so he's, he's trying to ultimately that. protect right.
0: himself, right? That's yeah. what he's. I mean, we saw it on the Blackwater. What was more important to him in that moment? Was it honoring his pledge as the king's sworn shield and his status as right. a member of the King's Guard? Right. No, no, it was fuck the city, fuck the king, right? I'm he out. saw fire, he got afraid. It was about protecting his own life. Sam and Gilly. Mm, love these two guys. Yeah. Love these two. Up in
1: the north, uh Sam is a little bit like Tyrion in this episode. Tyrion pushed Shay away for her own good, even though it really pained him. He did it in an exceptionally mean way. <laughs> Sam does the same to Gilly, sending her to Molestown and the um, underground village of Horse. Uh, <laughs> but he's not being cruel about it. And to, to be fair, he probably has a point, you know, right. like the the his sworn brothers in arms are not all the best people. Um, they're there for various criminal reasons, many of them. And her presence there is going to cause a lot of problems. And, and Sam, even though Sam tells Gilly that she'll be safe away from Castle Black, She's really hurt by this. Are you bored of me? Bored of you? I I want to protect you, And Sam says. And Sam, the interesting thing about Sam is, you know, he said he was a coward. He admitted it in in season one. Um, He wants to protect her. And he also, and this is like the sad part of Sam's character, he feels that he can't.
0: Right. That's what's so interesting about this particular interaction is that she is saying you know, hey, you got me out of Crasters, right. right? You saved me from a White Walker. What do you mean you can't save me from like old like googly eyes yeah. in the corner? <laughs> right. And his presence signifies protection right. fully because he has been her not only an effective protector, the only protector she's right. ever been the around only in adult, her entire life,
1: the only adult man in her life ever, right. Who has been uh, kind and not. Just willing to use her as like a baby factory who gets right. her gets him drinks and yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know? And it's
0: it's fascinating because it shows us how, you know, the idea of protection can really be relative, mm-hmm. even just in a one-on-one level like this. You know, to to her, his attempt to save her, to protect her, feels less like protection and more like abandonment, like betrayal. Speaking of the night's watch. Yeah. Ollie, that little shit who well, watched- not yet. Soon to be a little shit. Spoiler alert. Future little shit who has made his way to the Night's Watch to to share word, to spread word of the wildling attack on his village. And Maester Eamon, he's urging patience, caution. Right. He says, we can't afford to lose a single man. We must remember our first responsibility. We are the watchers on the wall a.k.a. we have to protect the realm. That means making really hard choices, and one of those hard choices is resisting the urge to run off to protect right. every villager or village who's in need, because abandoning your post comes at a cost. Right. We we just saw this, right? Do that
1: and you lose everything.
0: What happened when Mormon took all these guys north? Right. They would not be going north in this case, but still, right. you abandon your post and it comes at a cost. So, one of the weird things that happens is that in this scene is some unlikely allies. Yeah. Thorn agrees. And then shockingly, so does John, right? He says, Mance Raider is coming. If the wildlings breach the wall, they'll roll over everything and everyone for a thousand miles before they reach an army that can stop them. So he's saying, at least in this moment, got to stay put, got to make sure we're ready to face Mance. But how quickly things can change. A little horn blow. Gren and Ed, they are back. They've escaped their chains and they have word of the situation with Carl and the mutineers up at Craster's Keep, right? John, fast pivot here. Quick, quick, quick (laughs) pivot. He is panicking. Why? He told the Wildlings that they had over 1,000 men at Castle Black alone. Why does this matter? Well, as he will go on to explain to the group, if Mance comes across the mutineers and learns the truth. They've got very few men. They are not packing that kind of heat. They are going to be an easy mark. John knows that they cannot allow that to happen. They have to take out the mutineers, not only because they're bad dudes who betrayed the Lord Commander, though that's certainly a factor, but because in this moment they are a threat to the Night's Watch, to their ability to serve that function as protectors of the realm. Knowledge is power, right, as Littlefinger is always trying to tell us. And they cannot allow the mutineers to share that knowledge with Mance. Tyrion and Pod. God, I love these guys. Tyrion's been abandoned by the world, but and not I, by Pod.
1: The thing about Tyrion is he uses his father's wealth, as Jamie does, as Cersei does, to get out of a lot of things. Difference being, Tyrion has managed to forge relationships outside of that, you know, exchange of currency, the basic exchange of currency relationship. And you saw that with Bronn. Yes, he pays him, but there's also something else there. Right. And it's the same with Pod. You know, Pod... Smuggling cheese into the dungeons is a true sign of uh warm feelings of some kind of brotherly love. Could he be executed for this? Nah, probably that might. That's well. I mean, he did. You know, Tyrion is is up for high treason, so maybe. Uh, certainly, he might lose a hand, and then we find out that Podrick was offered a knighthood in order to flip on Tyrion. And he refused it. This is huge. I mean, that's like you know. There's not a lot of uh avenues for advancement in Westeros. Pretty much you're born into a lane and that's it. Right. If you're a commoner, you're going to, you know, whatever it is that your father did. He's a tanner. He's, you know, like he made the brown. um, You're going to be that person. So a chance to go up a rung or several rungs in life, they don't come around at all. So for Pod to turn this down, that is very, very big. In exchange for that protection, Tyrion wants to offer some of his own. He knows that Pod is um, really, at this point, maybe his only ally. Jamie hasn't come to not visit yet. him right. yet. His beloved brother hasn't come to visit him in the dungeons yet. And so he knows that he's, he's willing to forego certain things in order to save Pod's life. He says, I will not have you die on my behalf. Do you hear me? Orders Pod to leave King's Landing before it's too late. And says, Pod... There has never lived a more loyal squire. Oh, dear.
0: Every time, <laughs> every time, I weep openly. It's really touching. It really it's such is. a beautiful relationship. I love it.
1: Over in Marine, our long stay in Marine begins with the promise of protection, first from uh, the advisors Danny, all of whom offer to be your champion against Marines pissing horsemen. Great <laughs> moment. Um, Then from Danny to the slaves of Marine, I am not your enemy. Your enemy stands behind you. Your enemy steals and murders your children. Your enemy has nothing for you but chains, suffering, and commands. I did not bring you commands. I bring you a choice. And I bring your enemies what they deserve. Forward. Fire! (laughs) You know, the thing about Danny is, at this point in time, her image, her brand, as a protector of the downtrodden, of a person who's going to protect the rights, the human rights of these slaves is her greatest weapon at this point. That's, right. her, that's her message. That's the message that will allow these slaves to think, oh, I, you know, let's take the chance now. Let's rise up. Because, you know, her dragons aren't ready. Her, um, uns- she's got a pretty good army, but, you know, you're talking about siege warfare, not easy. So really her message as her protectionist message, I will protect you. I will protect your children. I will protect your life. Is her greatest asset at this moment. And then they, uh, you know, using the catapults to send the broken chains in. That's like, that's as good as it gets in terms of propaganda, guys.
0: Hey, guys, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Livestream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to Binge Mode. Jason. Yeah. When it comes to love... Oberyn Martell doesn't choose sides. No. But when it comes to war, he fights for Dorne. The Red Viper had another key exchange in this episode coming to a seemingly, at least, mutually beneficial arrangement with Tywin. So as the Prince of Dorne moves further into the thick of King's Landing politics and thus... Thick of in- a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, further into the show's the- spotlight and so much else... Let's assemble the conclave, head to the citadel. Teach us everything we need to know about Dorne's culture and agenda.
1: Dorne. Dorne, Dorne, Dorne. Dorne is the southernmost region of Westeros. Kind of looks like a foot pointed to the east. The toes pointed to the east. Those toes were once the arm of Dorne, linking Westeros to Essos, obviously shattered by the Children of the Forest back in the Dawn Age. Um... Dorne has an interesting history in relation to Westeros at large. It is in many ways the mirror image of the north, uh, but with stifling desert heat in place of the dour, ever-present uh, winter. It's the least populated owing to its just very, very harsh climate and geography. It's mostly mountains and a lot of deserts and then uh, a very thin green belt around some its rivers, and then some coastal areas that are not great natural harbors, mostly rocky. So it's not a great place to to be. And when the first men first came over from Essos, they were like, they took a look at this, and were like, you know what, let's keep moving, because this place is really, really not great. Um, Dorne contains very little arable land. Not a lot of farming going to go on here. Uh, The Red Mountains of Dorne on the northern border separate uh, the region from the Reach in the Stormlands to the south. It's mountains and ravines, which become a vast desert of undulating dunes When the wind blows. It uncovers uh, you know, the bones of the many, many armies that have perished there. Like the North, Dorn has a culture and traditions that stand uh, really apart from the rest of Westeros. That unique cultural heritage comes from the influence of the Rhoynar. They are the third ethnic group after the First Men and the Andals to migrate to the continent from Essos. The Rhoynar were a seafaring people who originated around the Great River Rhoyne in Essos. Thriving Rhoynish city-states, places like Croyain, uh their great festival city, Sarmel, Narsoy, many, many other places, once lined the banks of this great river, dominating trade in spices and weaponry, and they were very good at creating weapons which they traded up and down the river. But to the east, this time, another power was rising, the dragons of the Valerian Freehold. Yes. For many centuries, Valeria's attentions were focused to the east and its wars with the Giscari around what is now known as Slaver's Bay. We covered that a little while back. Once the Giscari were vanquished, though, dragonlords started looking to the west, to the Roynar. The resulting wars were just absolutely brutal conflicts of mass extermination. Uh, in which, surprisingly, Roynar actually did pretty well. Um, the first couple of battles... Uh, wars, that is, they won. But they were the kind of victories that were so damaging that, you know, you couldn't stand many more of these victories. Uh, the river peoples were experts in the production of armor and weapons, not as good as Valyrian steel, obviously, but but very robust. Uh, and they could counter the might of the dragon lords with their own water sorcerers. They had these, like, magicians that were could, could call uh, animals out of the river and mold water in certain ways that we we're not really sure about. So eventually... The Valerians really just stopped fucking around and sent as many as 300 dragon riders to just wipe out the right arm. The only survivors that were left managed to escape on a fleet of longships led by the legendary princess Nymeria, uh, who Arya named her wolf. Yes. And after a long, 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 long winding journey that lasted many years and stopped in numerous places that have not been seen in the story or the show, Nymeria's ragtag fleet of refugees made landfall at Dorne. Landing there, Nymeria was like, you know what, this is it. We're not, we're not traveling anymore. She burnt the ships on the banks of the beach. And some of her people were like really upset by this and they became the inhabitants of the first beginnings of what is known as Planky Town, which is kind of like the biggest real town in Dorne. And it's basically they took the, the ruins of these ships, lashed them all together at the mouth of the green blood and created this like floating town. So now we're about 1,000 years before the events of the show and about 300 years before the coming of Aegon the Conqueror. And at this time, Dorne, really like the rest of the realm, was a collection of Udin kingdoms. So the coming of the Rhoynar presented an opportunity to upset that status quo. And a minor Dornish family, House Martell, uh, jumped at the chance. Moors Martell took Nymeria to bride, as did many of his vassal lords, the Rhoynar's strength in skilled soldiers, both male and female. A lot of gender equality there. And their advanced technologies and the ability to work metal and make uh, armor, make weapons, allowed the Martells to conquer all of Dorne under their banner. It took uh, a long time. It happened after Moors passed away, but they managed to do it. And all the very interesting customs that make Dorne unique, uh, gender equality, inheritance through the female line, the acceptance as bastards as part of the family, the use of the honorific prince and or princess come from the influence of the Roynar. After Aegon's invasion, Dorne resisted the might of the dragons for almost 200 years. Well, I'll get into the Dornish Wars later and how uh, destructive they were. Dorne managed to take down Meraxes, which is the dragon that was ridden by Aegon's sister wife, Rhaenys. Meraxes. Meraxes. Uh, Which was a shocking turn in the Dornish Wars. We'll uh, we'll cover that later. And really, it took a, a, a wedding deal to finally bring Dorne into the realm. And now here they are again, really on the outs, their natural state, you would say.
0: All right, Maester. Some folks, like Stannis, lack an appreciation for the finer points of bad behavior. Mm. But not us. No! Not Oberyn either, I'd like to think. <laughs> ah. We relish them. So let's head to the Sept. Let's bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. Bad behavior-centric or otherwise. Yeah. Let's do a lightning round style. You go first.
1: About Davos's reading lesson scene with Shireen and how that basically could have been a scene like from Everybody Loves Raymond. (laughs) It was like a, it really was like a miniature sitcom scene embedded in Game of Thrones. Even from like the camera angle, he comes in and the door slams and she like slams a book shut and stands up and goes, You're late. (laughs) I mean, this could have been like a young couple. And then they do that thing where uh, he's kind of like talking about his troubles at work and how tough it is. And then something about her conversation turns the light bulb on. He realizes, ah, the Iron Bank.
0: Number two, speaking of
1: Davos, yeah. we have to ask. This is a great thing that we picked up on, on this latest viewing.
0: Jason and I have been geeking out about this a little bit. Did Davos almost get beheaded by Sirio? Here's a thing that he says to Shereen. Of course, they're talking about bravos, yeah. right? Of course, almost got beheaded by a first sort of bravos. I tried to explain to him the difference between smugglers and pirates. Uh, do we know a first sort of bravos? <laughs> I think we do. I think we do. The timelines—they're roughly the same age. I mean, like it's Davos work. seems
1: older, but yeah, I mean, it's tantalizing, isn't it?
0: All right, number three.
1: Uh, Davos talking to Stannis about you know, what they're willing to do about getting mercenaries, paying them. Stannis, of course, very against paying men to fight. They should be compelled by their sense of duty to do it. And Davos says, you know, we're willing to use blood magic to put you on the throne, but we're not willing to pay men to fight. Uh, great call out of Stannis' hypocrisy there.
0: Davos is wonderful. That's great. I really love him. Uh, number four, there was a lot of good Davos in this episode, and there was a lot of good Sam in this yeah. episode. So one of the... <laughs> Kind of amazing little moments in the Sam and Gilly exchange that we've already discussed is when he's attempting to justify his thought process for wanting to get her out of Castle Black and over to Molestown. He says, There's a hundred men lying awake at night picturing you. And she says, And what about you? And he's like, Literally, yeah. What does that mean? And then he has this great pause and he goes, Get it? What a thick-headed guy. Get it?
1: She have, have to draw a picture. I mean, she can't write yet. So does he have to draw a picture? Number five. Ollie, as he's laying under the cart, hiding from the slaughter of his village, watching very intently Egret's actions. He will remember this yeah. and he will relish uh, what comes later.
0: Number six. When Oliver asks Oberon mm-hmm. about liking men and women, because, you know, Oberyn, he's he's been clear. He's here yeah. for a reason, right? Yeah. But he's going to make time for orgies. Listen.
1: You gotta live.
0: Life <laughs> is short, guys. You gotta live. And he says, right, Oliver says to him, everyone has a preference, right? And what is Oberyn's response? Then everyone is missing half the world's pleasure. The gods made that, he's gesturing over right. to the nude women all around him, and it delights me. The gods made this, this is right. to Oliver, to naked right in front of him, and it delights me. When it comes to war, I fight for Dorne. When it comes to love, I don't choose sides. He's just great. Yeah. He's just great. It's hard to not make him the champion in every single episode that he's in because he has such a carefree but also badass <sighs> attitude. Like, he's really, he's kind of like, the, he's one of the Epicureans on the show, really right? Is. It's like, there's an understanding that you're here for a limited time. And he's a famed warrior. Like, he knows the perils that await. You might as well enjoy yourself before you go. We'll talk about why that's a powerful idea a little more <laughs> yeah. later on, but...
1: Number seven. The Hound. This guy just wants to get down to it. <laughs> Not really into saying Grace, if there's food on the table, let's eat the thing. The farmer, you know, is thanking uh the various gods of the seven. Um, and the hound goes, You're gonna th- you're gonna do all seven of the fuckers. <laughs> um, also, so great. Slow down, guys. Food is scarce in these times of trouble and war. Arya and the hound. Managed to spill a troubling amount of the stew.
0: It's an aggressive pouring strategy. Use a ladle. Also, just slow
1: down. Slow down. Slow down. This is terrible what is going on here.
0: Brutal. Well, Jason, this world can sometimes seem quite complicated. But the bedroom business, at least, is all relatively straightforward, at least according to this week's champion. Each episode, we are going to honor the person who played the game, advanced his or her cause in some tangible or entertaining way. This week, the winner of our champion's purse is... Tywin Lannister. Tywin also connects to the big idea of this episode, he is a protector, right? Yeah. And his chief goal in life is to protect the Lannister name, the right. family legacy. We hear this from him over and over and over again. So he doesn't have time to mourn Joffrey, right? He doesn't necessarily well, have reason yeah, to he, mourn Joffrey. He has a little
1: bit of time, but he's not willing to use it for those purposes.
0: Business. <laughs> yeah, Business. Focus on the task at hand. And that is training up Tommen so that he is ready to protect and continue working in favor of the family legacy. What is Tywin's approach? It's basically to give Tommen Tywin's own version of the thing about King's
1: speech.
0: Tywin basically asks Tommen a question, right? He enters into this not as a lecture, but as an exercise, which... You love, you I love do this love it. strategy.
1: I, I think it's incredible. First of all, uh, he starts with, you know, he sidles up to Tom and he says, your brother is dead. Do you know what that means? He steps closer and, and, and looks at him and then he says, I'm not trying to trick you. And I love that right. line. This is how good the, the writers are because it gives you a window into how intimidating Tywin Lannister is as a figure. Imagine you're a child, you're a child. And Tywin Lannister is asking you a question. And uh, wow, what do I say to this man who is- And that's not a abs- small question. Who is a titanic figure in the realm. And Tom, you know, it says, it means I'll become king. Yes, you will become king. What kind of king do you think you'll be? Tommen, questioning it. A good king,
0: maybe, <laughs> I hope.
1: And Tywin, you know, hmm, I think so as well. You've got the right temperament for it. And by the way, what does- what does he mean by that?
0: The temperament to be controlled.
1: Right. The temperament to listen to me and let me do things and not to question right. too much. Let me
0: protect you. Right.
1: Do not question too much the moves that I am making in your name.
0: Just sit on the throne. Don't make me say to you, you're being counseled right <laughs> now.
1: Right. Just sit on the throne and and really look good. And then they run through, you know, what, what are the things? And, he, you know, Tommen goes, uh, hmm, let me think. Uh, hmm. is it uh, justice? And Tywin nods, you know, hmm yes, yes, a good king must be just. the I was just. Everyone applauded his reforms, nobles and commoners alike. He was murdered in his sleep after less than a year by his own brother. Was that truly just of him to abandon his subjects to an evil he was too gullible to recognize? And this is, tells you a lot about Tywin. He has no time for fools. Right. If you've been tricked and you should blame only yourself. And by the way, this is kind of ironic coming from a family who got their start, essentially. <laughs> right. The progenitor of the Lannister line is, is Lan the Clever, who essentially tricked the Casterlys out of Casterly Rock. And then they go on further. You know, what about strength? What about wisdom? Ah, Tywin says when he gets to wisdom. And now, here's the thing. Yes, wisdom. Hmm. What is wisdom? Tommen, utterly perplexed about you know, what, what it means. Tywin tells him, a house with great wealth and fertile lands asks you for your protection against another with a strong navy that could one day oppose you. How do you know which choice is wise and which isn't? Mm-hmm. Like, that is what Tywin Lannister does every second of his life.
0: The other thing about Tywin, of course, in this episode that earns him our champion's purse is the way that he attempts to secure Oberyn's allegiance, yeah. right? Making a play for a Dornish alliance is no small thing is fucking shameless by the way oh my god especially given the shared history between these families and the the oft state it's not a secret oberon is always out there in the streets saying this is why i'm in king's landing right. he says it to tywin in the course of this conversation right first tywin asks him to be a judge at Tyrion's trial and then he offers him a spot on the small council and this is despite oberon openly accusing him he's t- bringing up his sister again. she okay. says she was raped by the mountain the mountain follows your orders of course i blame you he's saying that to tywin's face yeah. how many people would have the courage to do something like that it shows you actually in a way how desperate tywin is right to stand it, it, for it's that
1: extremely desperate it, i mean first of all he's continuing with the tyrell alliance after you know, if if Tywin was really willing to think it out, he's, like, ha- happy with the outcome, so he's right. not really pursuing it too far, but, you know.
0: So, he's agreeing to alliances he probably doesn't want to agree to, but he's also ultimately progressing and amending his thought process to the facts around him, which not everybody is willing to do or capable of doing. And, you know, when Oberyn says, you're saying you need us. Yeah. That must be hard for you to admit. Tywin kind of seamlessly transitions it to be basically mutual gain, right? Yeah. He says, we, we need, need each, each other. other. Not true. No.
1: You help me serve justice to the king's assassins
0: and I will help you serve justice to Elias.
1: Give me a fucking break. Well guy. I'm glad you uh, said that, you know, Tywin feels, it feels like he's a little desperate here. And he is. And we'll find out more about why he's so desperate to make these stabilizing alliances in later episodes that are coming up real soon.
0: All right, guys, if we don't press our claim, our claim will be forgotten. So onward we go. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing season four, episode four Oath Keeper. Until then, remember, you did wonderful work on this episode. The next one should be easier.
1: Peter, please, we're going to the Vale to see your Aunt Lysa. He oh, was a drunken fool, and I don't trust drunken fools.